The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Okay, if you would turn with me to the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Let's get into God's word together. So, I know there may be some folks here today that haven't been with us since Easter, so let me just kind of catch you up. Since Easter, we've been in a sermon series called Hearts Ablaze. The title for that came from Luke 24. There's this account of after the resurrection of Christ, there's two disciples walking along the road to Emmaus, like a seven-mile journey from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Uh, Jesus pops up. They don't know it's him at first, but they're kind of talking about everything that's happened and that Jesus was crucified. They're pretty sad and down in the dumps about it you know, naturally. And Jesus comes along, kind of asks them what they're talking about. They're like, oh man, how do you not know? We're really bummed out about these things. And, and Jesus proceeds then to take them to the scriptures, which if, if we're thinking about this, this, at this point, as Jesus is walking the earth, a reference to the scriptures would be the Hebrew scriptures, right? He takes them to the Old Testament and he shows them how all of those scriptures were pointing to him. And then there's this later comment by these two disciples, after Jesus breaks bread, they realize it's him, and he vanishes, some resurrection body type wild stuff that goes on at the end of the Gospels, that's pretty cool. But what happens then is they they, they look at each other and they say, did our hearts not burn within us as we walked along the road, and he was showing us and teaching us how to see the scriptures in in this new way, this lens of understanding of how it was pointing forward to him. And so that's kind of the premise that we launched out of, that, that this idea that God's plan of redemption being unfolded before our eyes as it was for those disciples, for us to see the grand narrative of God's power, God's love all displayed in all that he has done, not only to create us, but then to save us, that, that what this, the effect that should have is to set our hearts on fire with passion for him. And so we've then in subsequent weeks since Easter been looking at what can be hindrances to our hearts being set ablaze with joy-filled passion for Christ and his gospel. Because I think if we're being honest, there are sometimes hindrances, there's encumbrances that, that stand in the way. Sometimes, if we're being really honest, it wouldn't be accurate to say that my heart is on fire or burning within me with passion for the name of Christ and for the glory of his gospel and the furthering of his kingdom. Sometimes that's true. So what, what is it? What stops us sometimes? Many things, but we've focused over the last several weeks on a few specific things. The, the first week after Easter, we looked at pains from the past and how pains from the past can be a hindrance to our hearts being ablaze for Christ. And, and, and to look at that, to, to understand that principle, we, we looked at the healing of Naaman's leprosy in 2 Kings 5, which took place, if you remember... Because a little girl walked in love towards her enemies. That's really what got that thing going. Okay? We looked at pains from the past. Then we looked at another hurdle to having hearts ablaze for Christ. Anxieties in the present. This was last week. And so to understand how that works, we, we looked at the story of Esther and how God used her to deliver his people from genocide. And so this week... We're going to look at fears about the future. So we looked at pains from the past, anxieties in the present. This week, we're going to look at fears about the future. And for that, we're turning to the story of Ruth. And you may be asking, well, why these stories? There's lots of stories in the Old Testament. I'm glad you, that's a great question. I'm thankful you're paying attention. You guys are on it this morning. Awesome. And I would say the first and biggest reason is that All of these are from the Old Testament. These would have been, these stories we've looked at over the last several weeks, would have been part of the narrative Jesus shared with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, showing them how these divinely orchestrated events were all pointing forward to him. They were all links in the historical chain that led to him coming to save us. Sometimes, It's hard to see the Bible in that way. Sometimes the Bible isn't taught in that way. Sometimes it's taught as if it's a fragmented set of moral lessons, but that's not it. It's one story. It ties together, and it's pointing us to Christ. It's pointing us 
to God's great power and love displayed through his gospel. Amen. And, and since that's true, since that, those guys on the road to Emmaus, man, their heart, they said our hearts burned within us. There was a power in the word of God preached through this lens of seeing God's work in, in his gospel. And so we believe the same power that God's word had to make those brothers' hearts burn within them, that same power is at work in us as we study these scriptures together. It's by the Spirit of Christ that we are approaching the scriptures today. It's with the help of his Holy Spirit that we can go into the Old Testament and look with these eyes to see. Amen? And the same power of God that set those brothers, ignited them, I believe is at work in us. Now, I do think there's, there's another reason that, that has a more specific and current application. It's something, honestly, I was not aware of until this week. I'm going to share that with you after we look at our text today. Now, I want to just establish that the premise of each of these weeks, okay, as we've worked through this, is, is that these people had the very real potential, because of their circumstances, to have cold and bitter hearts instead of hearts full of fire and passion for God and his people. Think about it. A little girl, having been taken from her family by Naaman, speaks up about a prophet of her people that could heal him. She had, you know, by rights, in the natural, she, you wouldn't expect that to be where she was at. There was, based on her circumstances, you could see there, there being a potential hurdle there that would lead to more coldness and bitterness than love and warmth towards the guy that stole her from her family. Esther had a lot going on. She puts her life on the line to go before the king, uninvited, to rescue her people from Haman's murderous plot. With her bold summary of that being, once the decision had been made, this is what she's going to do, her bold summary, and this, you want to talk about what... Well, Pastor Vince, what's a heart ablaze look like? Let me give you an example. When you get somebody staring down the barrel of, of their life on the line and, and they know what it means to serve God and to serve his people, if their bottom line is this, I'm calling that a heart ablaze with passion for God and his people. If I perish, I perish. That's where she was at. Come on. That tells me something. Now, I know that we studied the entire book of Ruth together as a church last year, but let me quickly remind those who were here of some details and catch anyone up who may not have been with us for that. That will lead us to our text in Ruth chapter 1, verses 14 through 17. So the book of Ruth is set in the time of the judges, particularly there's a time where there was a famine in the land of Israel, and particularly... There's this family that now the, the lens focuses down onto. It's a man named Elimelech. His wife's name is Naomi. They have two sons named Malon and Kilion. They hail from the area of Bethlehem. And so the Bible says that they go and sojourn in a place called Moab. Moab, in, in general, was not friendly to the people of God and vice versa. They were enemies. And yet, in desperation, Elimelech takes his family and goes there hoping for greener pastures, shall we say. And uh, they are, they're, they're in the land of Moab, and uh, not too much later, their sons marry uh, two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. And then not too long after that, uh, we see Elimelech, the dad, and Malon and Kilion all die. This puts all of these ladies in a very difficult position. And so what happens... After they die, there's, there's some choices. They can stay in Moab. They can try to go back to the land of Israel. And, and basically what you see is, is Naomi tries to white fang Ruth and Orpah. You guys know what I mean when I say that? You guys know the story white fang, right? There's a point in the story where it's, it's, bad, it's bad for white fang to be with his owner. So he really loves the dog, doesn't really want the dog to go. But he's like, go away, get out of here. You know, but he doesn't really mean it. it's this very emotional, tense thing. So that's kind of what happens. There's a white fang moment. Uh, if you haven't read White Fang, I don't know, you know where you went to school, but it's a good book. Check it out. Um, anyways, so that happens, and uh, basically Orpah is able to be convinced. Ruth is not. That brings us to our first set of verses. So we're in Ruth 1, and let's read verses 14 through 17 
together. It says, and they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, and Ruth clung to her. Then she said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Praise God for his word. Now, Ruth has every reason, friends, to be terrified about the future. But something in her heart is on fire with love for her mother-in-law and faith in her God. You may say, well, why are you saying there, there's such reason to be terrified? Friends, in the ancient world, the position of a widow was a very desperate situation. And this is now, not only do you have Ruth being a widow, but her mother-in-law being a widow, the proposition being, we're going to go back now to the land of Israel, a place where Ruth being of the Moabite people is not going to be looked at very favorably, quite opposite, Right? And they're going back to no security. They're going back to, basically as far as they could see, probably a, a, a poverty beggar's existence. That's, that's what they have to look forward to. Serious destitution and difficulty. And why did they leave Bethlehem to begin with? There was already a famine, so everybody's struggling. And now they're going back without the family structure, without all the things that in that ancient time period were really important for the provision, particularly of women. But here's, here's what we see. This, this whole, the way this whole thing plays out, I believe it illustrates really well how those with a heart ablaze for God can deal with fears about the future that those without cannot. What do I mean when I say that? Friends, Ruth was able to stare down the stark reality of what it looked like was coming and make a bold decision that if she had nothing more than God and God's people, then even if her and Naomi were to die in worldly destitution, the Lord was worthy of her loyalty, worthy of her trust, worthy of her worship, and ultimately that she could rest in his sovereign power and his unmatched goodness. You've got Naomi saying, girls, go back home. Go back to your gods. Go back to your people because I've got nothing for you. This is not going to go good for me and I can't guarantee you anything but probably more pain and suffering. But there's something in Ruth, something about what she's seen about the God of Naomi and a love for her mother-in-law, a loyalty for her mother-in-law, a, a I'm going to say, a heart ablaze for God and for his people. What does she say? Your people are going to be my people. It's not, like, it's not like Ruth isn't thinking about this, you understand. This isn't just an impulsive, emotional decision. Ruth's not just on a whim here. She's thought about what this means. If I go with her, what that means is, your people are my people. Your God is my God. Where you die, I'm going to die, and that's where we're going to be buried. This is a serious deal. How do you get to a place where you're, you're staring down the barrel of, this is probably going to mean a lot of more suffering and discomfort for me. How do you, how do you move in, in, in a bold decision like that with that being what you're looking at? How do, you, how do you stare a future that looks that scary in the face and have that kind of reaction? Well, if your heart's on fire with love, man, that's how you do it. And it's right and it's beautiful. It's courageous. It's exemplary. Friends, an eternal perspective is a powerful medicine against the sickness of worry. Amen. It, it really is. And, and you can tell something, God had done something in his great mercy and grace in the heart and mind of Ruth to cause her to be able to see past what was going to be perhaps long, but temporary suffering. And to have an eternal perspective to see that this eternal God was worthy of her worship. I, I had a conversation along these lines yesterday with uh, my daughter, Lucy. She's 11, and uh, 
<clears throat> we, we, were at a, we, we pulled into a gas station, and uh, it was just, just her and I, and, and a car pulled up next to us. And there, was, there was a guy, mask on, and uh, I don't know where you've, I've spent enough time in the urban core that I kind of know the deal. And uh, this, this guy was dealing drugs, and so he pulls up and very obviously trying to catch my eye. And so my typical protocol is I normally give the old respect nod, right? And then break eye contact, right? That's, that's basically the way I do it. Uh, just let them know, yep, I see you, I have respect for you, but I'm not going to buy your drugs. This is basically the message being sent with the, you know, you know guys can, we can say a lot. It's like, <laughs> there's a whole range of <laughs> conversation that can happen with that head nod. So, uh, so then the guy kind of pulls up to the exit, and this, this other really young-looking kid, which is tragic because of how everything went down, but he comes out of the gas station, and they, they start to talk, and, and it, gets, it gets more and more heated, and then, and then I notice that the young kid's got his hand in, in that position, and then I notice this guy, I see his hand come up, and I can, I can see there's a rubber glove on the hand. They keep going at each other. The door opens. And, right, you know, and now it's, it's at, I'm about to do this and this and this to you. His door's open. You know, gun cocked sideways. And me and Lucy are, you know, from me to that first row in the back section. That's the distance. Right at the angle, right? So, boom. And this is, so this is happening. And... Uh, by the grace of God, it, it didn't end up in a, in a shooting match. They screamed at each other a little bit more, and, and then the guy peeled off. But of course, after watching all of that happen, Lucy had questions. And uh, so I explained to her the, the nature of the entire context of the situation, why that was happening, as much as I had understanding from what I could observe. And then we got into some discussion. I kind of asked her, okay, so if, if gunshots had started to go off, what would you have done? Just kind of train her on what protocol would be. And uh, she's pretty insightful. And so she says, you know, so I'm asking her questions and kind of guiding her on, all right, so there's an engine in the front of the car, right? That's pretty much a good barrier. So you should drop down if you hear gunshots, don't try to get out, that type of stuff, right? And so then she flips it on me with her 11-year-old self, like, well, dad, what would you have done? You wouldn't have got out of the vehicle, would you? (laughs) She knows her dad. And uh, so I said, okay, well, here's, and so, and, and <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm going to explain some things here. I'm just going to tell you what I told her. And, and I know I'm, I'm going to end up out on a limb here. Some of you are not going to like this for, for different reasons, and that's okay. Uh, some of you won't like it because you think that uh, violence is never warranted. And some of you won't like it because you think if, Self-defense is in play. Violence is always warranted. And uh, my personal set of convictions around the matter land somewhere in the middle of that. So uh, I do have a concealing carry. And so, you know, just right off the bat, some of you might not like that. And we can talk about it if you want, but I do. And uh, what I explained to Lucy is, well, if we could get away from the situation, that would be number one. That's, that's how we would have approached that. But if we're in a situation like we were, a gas station, cars behind us, really no way out. Uh, as long as my, my <clears throat> actions would, would be different based on whether you are in the car or I'm alone. If you're in the car and, and the danger is now getting to where you're in direct threat, then yes, daddy would get out of the car and I would engage with that. And that's already a pre-made decision for me. If I'm defending you or I'm defending someone else that can't defend themselves, then yes, uh, Daddy would get involved. Now, if it was just me, that changes the calculus. And this is where it gets to an eternal perspective. And we had, we had a, a teary-eyed moment together. Because I said, if it's just me, the calculus is a bit different. If I'm not defending somebody else, then I have to run this through my mind. I know the Lord. I'm confident that I belong to Christ. And if I'm the only one in danger where my personal conviction sits right now is that I don't want to use lethal force on somebody that I'm, by all rights, what I can observe, probably does not know the Lord because of what that would mean for them eternally. So my trust would have to be in God in that moment. Uh, I'm welcome 
always to the leading of the Holy Spirit in the midst of a situation to move differently. I'm just telling you, as I've had to think through that, that's where I've landed. And so I'm telling my 11-year-old that, and of course she's getting misty-eyed, and then I'm getting misty-eyed, and we're trying to talk about the eternal implications of all of that. But I was encouraged because she was able to get it. I'm not sure she was thrilled with my end result, but she was able to say, yeah, I can understand that. And so uh, that opens a can of worms that gets to a lot of very, very complex questions. I just trying, the only reason I told you that was to illustrate how important an eternal perspective is. Because if, if you, if, it's very easy for us existing in this plane to, to get very wrapped up in, in only thinking through things from this level. Uh, but the Bible's very clear. This, this life is a vapor. This is not our home. And we have to think about eternity when we make decisions about a lot of things. Uh, this, this one was a pretty serious one. And um, that's, I guess that's, that's my bottom line. And I think uh, Ruth had an eternal perspective. And that's part of how the fear of the future did not keep her from making a bold decision to follow God in spite of what it looked like. She, she, hadn't, she had no guarantee. There was, there was no carrot at the end of this for her. Oh, well, maybe if I, if I follow God, then it looks like maybe I'm going to have it easier. And it was, it was quite the opposite. The easier option on a temporal plane was to go back home and worship other gods. There'd be some support there. That's her people, right? But she's going to walk away from all of that because something about the reality of the God of Israel, the one true God, had, had gotten in and set her heart on fire to the point that she didn't care about temporary comfort. She cared about loyalty and love for her mother-in-law and loyalty and love to this God whom she had found. Is that helping you with anything? It's helping me with all kinds of stuff. It'll help me think right. Amen. Ruth had every reason to be terrified about the future and have a cold, embittered heart towards God and God's people because of what it looked like was a foregone conclusion. But I'm going to ask those of you who are familiar with the story, I want you to help me preach. I just need one word from you. Is the worst case scenario that Naomi and Ruth thought is how this was going to play out, if you know the book of Ruth, is that what ended up happening? No, that's not what ended up happening. And that's the other thing we always have to keep in mind, right? God does wild, cool stuff, <laughs> right? And so, and he's not just concerned about the e e eternal plane of these things. He's not only focused on our eternal good. God is so wonderful and so mighty and so caring that he even gets down into the details of this little vapor of a life we're living. Aren't you glad? Amen. And so as we continue from here, almost immediately, there's a little bit of discourse about how brokenhearted Naomi is. And then, as I was telling you last week, there's all these points in the, in the book of Esther where it's like these just-so-happened moments. There's another one in Esther, but actually it's explicit. The author here actually says, it just so happens, as Ruth goes to glean, so this, this is the plan, Ruth and Naomi come back, and there was this provision within the law that those who were destitute, widows, those that had no other recourse, uh, the farmers were supposed to leave a certain amounts of grain in the field so that those who had no other way to eat could come out and harvest that and live. And so that's the plan. Naomi's too old to do that. So Ruth, that's what she's going to do to provide for them. So she goes out to glean in the fields. And the Bible says that it just so happens that she comes to the field of Boaz. Boaz, we come to find out, is what would what's referred to as a kinsman redeemer. What does that mean? Also, there's a provision with, within the law for widows, called, it was called leverate marriage. And what that meant was, the, oftentimes it was the brother, but basically the closest relative to a man who had passed away would be able to then marry his wife and raise children up in his name because family lines and lineage the, the disbursement of land was connected to that. A family's wealth would pass down generationally. And so if, if a husband died and, and then no one raised up children in his name, then his inheritance would kind of dissipate or be sometimes overtaken in unscrupulous ways or, or whatever. And so God had this provision within the law to take care of the widows and also to continue the posterity of family lines. God cared very much about that. And so what we find out is that Boaz, not only is he very kind to her, right? She doesn't know this yet, that he's a, 
a close relative of Naomi's, but uh, he sees her, he's impressed by her work ethic, impressed by the fact that she is who she is and she's doing what she's doing, uh, her loyalty and love for her mother-in-law, and so he, he treats her kindly, uh, doesn't, basically, you know, he instructs his workers like, look, just, just drop some and make it easy for her. I don't even want her to have to work as hard because she's already got it hard, so just help her. And brings her in, feeds her lunch, very, a lot of kindness. And so um, all of that kind of takes place. And, and then she comes back with, you know, a bunch of grain, like way more than you normally would from going out and gleaning because that's really hard work and it's kind of sparse normally. And so Naomi's like, hey, what happened? She's like, oh, I was in the field of Boaz. And Naomi's like, girl, I got a plan. So Ruth gets gussied up, you know what I mean? And, and, and uh, that's a weird word, isn't it? Where'd that come from? I mean, until I grew up in the country a little bit. Uh, yeah, so Ruth gets gussied up. It's a country story, so I think it's, it fits perfectly. Um, and, 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 and Boaz is at the, the threshing floor. That's where like, the grain is processed, right? And so he eats and uh, drinks some and lays down, and, and there's this kind of weird scene where she lays down at his feet and you know, there's some cultural context there. She says, cover me with your blanket. Uh, she's, she's not making a, a sexual proposition. It's, it's basically, she's clearly saying like, hey, I want you to, I'm asking you, man. I'm taking this bold move here. I'm asking you to exercise your right as a kinsman redeemer and to redeem uh, me and to redeem the family line of my husband. And uh, Boaz is like, bet, run it. Let's do it. And so uh, that's a rough translation of what he said, but... Um, How'd I go from gussied up to bet run it, man? I, look, I was raised in the country, but I live in the hood now, don't I? Amen. Hallelujah. Renaissance, man. I can hang out anywhere. <laughs> oh, that's all right. I make myself a target. It's okay. You guys can make fun of me. All right. So that, that happens, and, and, and Boaz, uh, being a godly man, isn't afraid of all that that means, we have to understand there's a, a for, for somebody that was more insecure than Boaz, there, there's, there'd be a social concern about marrying Ruth being, a, being from Moab. Uh, but Boaz is kind of his own guy and loves the Lord as well, and, and he's not really worried about what other people think. So he goes down to the city gate, and uh, back then they, they took a sandal off and handed it to the other guy to make a transaction, which, you know, I'm glad we're not doing that anymore because that's weird and gross, but... I don't want to touch your shoe to buy your house or whatever, but uh, that's the way they did it. And then uh, that leads us to, to this second set of verses. So he does that. There was another guy in line. So there's a little bit of suspense there in the story. Another guy that was a closer relative. Boaz comes and just kind of is like, hey, man, um, all the land of, of Elimelech and his sons, like, you know, that's, somebody needs to redeem that. And he's like, yep, got it. I'll do it. I like land. And he's like, well, but you're also going to have to, by law, marry Ruth to get the land. And the guy's like, you know what? You do it. You can have it. So that guy was a little more of a chump uh, than Boaz. So uh, <clears throat> that, that whole interaction happens, and then that leads us to Ruth 4, starting in verse 13. We're going to read to verse 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed is the Lord who's not left you without a redeemer today, and may his name become famous in Israel. May he also be to you a restorer of life and a sustainer of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons has given birth to him. That's a big statement in this cultural context. This daughter-in-law being better than seven sons were highly preferred because lineage passed down through sons, inheritance passed down through sons. These women saying this, that's big, that's real big. Verse 15, may he also be to you a restorer of life, a sustainer of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better than seven sons has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name, saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He's the father of Jesse, father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. Hezron was born Ram to Ram, Aminadab, and to Aminadab was born Nashon, and Nashon, Salmon, and Salmon was born to Boaz, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse, David. Now, 
I don't know if you've seen, I don't know if the dots connect for you yet. If you were here when we went through the book of Ruth, they probably have, uh, because I get pretty stoked on this. But the broader sense, before I dial in on that, is here's one of the big implications to this whole sermon series, all right, about hearts being ablaze. You ready for one of the big implications? I mean, this has been the undercurrent of the whole thing, if, if not equal to the other primary ideas. Those two disciples whose hearts got set on fire by Jesus on the road to Emmaus, they ran seven miles back to Jerusalem immediately to share what they had experienced. Immediately when their hearts got set on fire by Christ and the goodness of his gospel, they got to work telling somebody and giving it to somebody else. That little girl in the story of Naaman, her warm heart of love towards her captors ended with the general of a foreign country becoming a worshiper of the God of Israel. Esther's fiery determination and white hot resolve in the sovereignty of God led to the saving of thousands of God's people, the praise of God's people, and and, and further declaration of his power to save in the land. And Ruth's heart ablaze with love-motivated loyalty towards God and his people, regardless of whether it meant comfort in this life or not, led to her meeting and marrying Boaz. And her meeting and marrying Boaz meant the birth of Obed. The birth of Obed meant the birth of Jesse. The birth of Jesse meant the birth of David. And if you follow the line, the birth of David eventually means the birth of Christ. What am I saying? Well, the birth of Christ obviously leads to the salvation of all mankind. What I'm saying is the idea of us not settling for some lukewarm and half-hearted existence with divided allegiance and affections. It, it isn't just about how much of a, a pathetic waste that would be of our own lives. And, and make no mistake, It would be a sad and tragic waste of each of our individual lives to stay in some kind of lukewarm, half-hearted, half-divided approach to serving God. It's also about what God can do in the world with hearts that are ablaze with passionate love for him and for people. Our Father wants so much more joyous and exciting and passion-filled lives for his children than we are often willing to settle for. And at one level, yes, this, his desire for us to have these kind of lives, it, it is because he loves each of us. And, and that is, it is absolutely the best life we can experience as humans, is one, in connection with God, in passionate love for God. That is, that is what we were made for, and that is going to be the best existence you're possibly going to have as a human. And so at one level, yes, it is about his love for you, but also because he loves others, and he wants, us, he wants to use us to help ignite the same glorious flames in their hearts that have been lit in ours, hopefully. And understand that to participate in that, man, we, we have to change our mentality. This isn't, it's not like, Oh, okay, well, I guess I'll, guess I'll get on fire for Jesus and be a part of gospel mission. Man, it, it only, to, to, to actually walk in the purpose that God has for us, it only compounds and multiplies our personal joy. Because getting to work with our Father in his eternal rescue mission is awesome. It's awesome. And that... Friends, all the way through, from from beginning to end, from Easter to now, those implications have rung through every single story. And in case you didn't catch the fact that it's very easy for us to look at the book of Ruth and see a foreshadow of Jesus, here's the thing, it's like like a gimme, it's a freebie when they call Boaz a kinsman redeemer, right? It's like, oh, okay, yep, I see the echo of the gospel in that. I see somebody coming in, somebody that has no power on their own to change the situation, comes in and does something they couldn't do on their own. Ding, 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 ding. There's a gospel echo. But understand, man, we read the end of the book. Did you hear what I heard? Did did you, here's the thing, man. At the end, the focus of the neighbor women is not on Ruth and her redemption. Who's it on? It's on Naomi. How did Naomi's redemption come? She had a daughter-in-law 
better than seven sons. There's, there's a hidden redeemer in here, but it ain't that hidden because the name of the book isn't Boaz. The name of the book is Ruth, right? And so I think you're meant to catch it. It's not like, ooh, only the super, really spiritual Christians will find this one. I'm, I'm looking for that. There's, there's, there is an echo forward of Jesus' redemptive power and Jesus' redemptive work in the fact that all the way back, Ruth is staring down the barrel of what looks like a really rough go. I'm, it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm, whatever the price is, I'm going to pay it to serve and to love my mother-in-law. Ruth's a hidden redeemer in this thing. Amen. And so the point is, all of this ties back to Jesus. All of this, what we've done over these last weeks is, is to, with our imaginations, try to venture into some of what of that conversation could have been on the road to Emmaus. Those brothers came away saying, were our hearts not burning within us? And I'm hoping, as you've seen more and more of God's redemptive gospel narrative unpacked throughout the Old Testament, that you're more and more convinced of the, the absolute divine nature of the word of God, man. I mean, how do you make this stuff up at one level? But, but secondly, th- just the way that it applies and what it encourages us to consistently. It's, it's not just, okay, well, I'm, the preacher said I should be really excited about God, so I'm going to be excited about God, right? That's, that's not the thing, man. And we're talking about what I'm hoping is the genuine power of the word of God has penetrated your heart over these last several weeks to see the unfolding of God's redemptive plan and his gospel over and over again, all of the pointing forward to Christ, the fullest expression of God's redemptive intention, that our hearts are also being stirred to passion, We've acknowledged over the last three weeks, there are hindrances. Many of us are plagued with pain from the past. Many of us are plagued with anxiety about what's going on right now. Many of us look to the future with fear, but there, none of that has to actually be a hindrance and a stop to our hearts being on fire. Genuinely, with passion for God and love for his people. Amen. And I told you that there's another reason I think the Lord led me to these particular Old Testament accounts, and, and to, to draw out these principles. There's all kinds of other Bible stories we could have gone to to, to work these, these same principles, to, to illustrate these same principles. Uh, you know, this past, present, and future potential hindrances to a heart on fire for the Lord. There's many places we could have gone. But, but, and I didn't know it then, but for some reason it was, and, and look, I, you know, I believe the Holy Spirit is still active in leading his people, right? So when I go into sermon series and I go into trying to figure out what uh, I, I believe the Lord wants to feed his sheep, I don't, just, I don't just go in and think, okay, well, I'm really smart. Let me pick something for God's people, right? I'm going in prayerful and asking God to lead me, and I believe he does. And, and somehow, for some reason, I didn't understand this three weeks ago, four weeks ago, five weeks ago, when I started really looking at laying this out, but it was, it was Naaman, the hero of that story being a little girl that doesn't even get named. It was Esther, and it was Ruth. And I didn't, I didn't know, friends, that we were going to be in the midst of this week, a cultural moment, where we have churches all over the country this morning being protested because of several issues, one of which being the potential outlawing of abortion, and here's what I'm going to say about that right in this moment. I'm not preaching long today, and that's a long sermon. If you have questions about thinking through that from a biblical perspective, absolutely come and see us. I'm not going to get into that today. What I do want to touch on is, is it's, it's an issue behind that issue that influences it. It's this belief that people have that the Bible, that God is oppressive or restrictive or has a bad view of women. That undergirds some of this other debate that's white hot in our country right now as a result of some political maneuvering and things that are going on. That issue, the issue of well, what does God think about women? What does, how does the Bible portray women? Because the stereotype is, for many, they, they really believe that what the Bible teaches and what Christians believe is that women are second-class citizens that should be held under the thumb of men. But is that really what the Bible teaches? Is that really what it shows? 
I don't think it does, particularly when we look at the fact that these, look man, we're reading from the Old Testament. We have, we've gone three weeks looking at Old Testament narratives where a woman is put as the hero of the story. Now that today to all of us is like, well, yeah, why wouldn't you do that? But you got to think about when this was written. You got to think about the audience it was written for. This was a patriarchal society. The Bible is, I mean, it, it, it's a riot maker, man. This would have been waves to have a book named Ruth, a book named Esther, and have the hero of the story be a woman in, in, a, in a place, in a time where women were oftentimes regarded as property of their husbands. Fast forward to the Roman era that Jesus stepped into. Okay? Adultery was assumed by men. That's fine. Woman stoned for adultery. Basically, a second-class citizen, if, if not even really given the rights of citizenship at all, this is the context that Jesus came into. And let me ask you a question. We're just talking about how the Bible views women. Now, let me just grant this, in case it's a hurdle for anybody. Have there been many idiots over time? Did you say idiots? I said idiots. Has there been many idiots over time that have tried to take this Bible and use it to justify the mistreatment and the oppression of women? Absolutely. They're idiots. They didn't read it. They didn't read it starting in Genesis that God made them male and female in his image. He made them. Okay? Fast forward to the time of Jesus. Comes into a a Roman-ruled culture, not favorable to women. It's a bad bad time to be a lady. You guys with me on that? Let me ask you this. How many of you know who the first person was that Jesus publicly revealed to himself clearly that he was the Messiah? Anybody know? The Samaritan woman at the well. Scandal. Top to bottom scandal. All the way, right? Jesus shouldn't even be talking to her according to the guys that that were supposed to be representing God at that time. Shouldn't have even spoken to her. Much less have all the interaction that he did, much less be teaching her, right? There was, there was rabbis at the time that wrote, look, we, you should burn the law before you teach it to a woman. So it wasn't just the Romans that, that were not treating women well, okay? Jesus came in and said, let me show you what I think about that. Women, women, why was there so many women following Jesus? Why? Why was Christianity ridiculed early on for only being able to really attract women and children? Think about it. Because because Jesus came in because the Bible actually rocked the paradigm of how women were treated. I mean, go go to the specifics of of marriage. Man, that until, because you might say, okay, yeah, I know, we like Jesus, but Paul, not Paul. Well, hold on, man. Paul wrote Ephesians 5, It starts this discourse on marriage with subject yourselves to one another and then goes on to encourage husbands to love their wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, friends. That was, for all of us, that's like, yep, yep, I've heard that. Yep, I know about that. You know about that because the Spirit of God inspired Paul to write it and it changed the world. The Bible changed the world. The story of Christ changed the world. The gospel changed the world. Christianity is one of the best things that ever happened for women. Oh, I don't don't think that's right. Okay, go to places in the world right now where Christianity has not had the influence that it's had other places. Now, am I saying all the work is done? Am I saying that there are, because of the Bible, no longer misogynist idiots around? No, there's still plenty of them running around and we need to shout them down. Amen. Amen, ladies, anybody? Amen, let's shout them down. They're idiots. You don't get to treat women poorly. Jesus said we treat them with the utmost respect as co-equal image bearers of Christ. Now, got a caveat. Yes, we're Bible-believing Christians. We know that God has established roles and different things and all of that. And we've got, I've got lots of sermons about how all that works. We've got questions about that. Let's talk about it. But none of that speaks to, at all, the larger question of whether God sees women as an equal reflection of his image in the world, that they have equal dignity, value, and worth before God through Christ. That is, that is unable to be denied. And anybody that's tried to use this book to, 
to further any message other than that is dead wrong. Amen. Now, practically, what that means is, and part of what, why am I saying I, I didn't know, I didn't know five weeks ago. Friends, I didn't know five weeks ago that there was going to be a leak out of the Supreme Court that was going to light this tinderbox that we're in now this week. Okay? I didn't know that, but the Holy Spirit did. And the Holy Spirit led me five weeks ago to focus on three stories that in case, in case you know, a, a, a short little encouragement today that was just kind of off the cuff because the world seems like it's on fire out here. And so I'm just trying, look, man, for three weeks, we've been preparing our hearts to think about this idea, right? How does the scriptures present women? Not as somebody that God's trying to hold down, take things away from hurt, but that oftentimes God has no problem with them being shown as the ones walking in obedience, being the hero of the story. God has no desire to take freedoms away from women, what the issue comes down to oftentimes, and this is across the board for everybody, men and women, we, we struggle with the definition of freedom. Because oftentimes, freedom for us is doing what I think with my limited viewpoint and, and intelligence is the best thing. Part of what it means to mature in understanding who God is and what our place is to him is understanding that freedom True freedom is, is coming to the point of knowing that obeying him, obedience to him is true freedom for a human. Because in every way I go outside the benevolent boundaries he's set, it's going to hurt me. God doesn't say don't go over there because there's really good things over there that are going to be awesome for you. God says don't go over there because over there is stuff that's going to hurt you. God doesn't say go over there and do these type of things because there's bad things over there that are going to hurt you. He says, go over there and do this type of stuff because over there is where you're going to find blessing and you're going to be able to walk in the divine purpose that I created you for. That's true for men and it's true for women. And just keeping that idea in place, friends, as you try to navigate whatever's going to unfold over the next several weeks might be really helpful. And part of what I, I just want to end with, and it just, you know, happens to be on Mother's Day, amen, but ladies, the little girl with Naaman, Esther, Ruth. I didn't even get, what time is it? I, I, can't, I can't, I gotta do it. I didn't, even, I didn't even talk about the fact, okay? Look, at the end of this, we get a, we get a little genealogy, right? Salmon is Boaz's daddy, right? Boaz and Ruth have Obed. Obed is Jesse, Jesse has Ruth, right? But we don't see Sorry, Jesse has David, yeah. No, no, Ruth's the grandma. I'm going fast. There's gonna probably be more of that. I got I'm trying to get this out in far too little time. Here, here's what I wanna show you. We, we see Salmon talked about, but, but, but do you know who Salmon's wife was? Rahab. That's another bold woman that made a decision. She had something going on, some fire in her belly when the spies show up and she, look, she's defying her people, defying her God. She heard the stories about the Red Sea split and she heard the stories about this God. She's like, all right, look, I'm going with him. So she hides the spies in the eaves and, and the end result of the whole thing is she ends up putting a scarlet cord out her window so that the, when the armies of God come in to take business, they know to spare that house and that family. A scarlet thread hanging out the window. Okay, so there's that. But, but what I'm, I'm, talking about, I'm talking about lineage, man. Today's thing is fear about the future and it's Mother's Day and, there's, and it's women. It's all these things come and they, the confluence comes together. And friends, I'm just telling you, I'm not smart enough to tie all these threads together. I'm just trying to show you the Holy Ghost doing something for us today. Man, Rahab, man, Ruth, Esther, the little girl, man. All Ladies, we need, we need women on fire for Christ. We need women walking in boldness. And love motivated, fiery passion for Christ and his name. And so do not lay down under the pretense of any kind of false narrative that tries to tell you that you can't walk in love motivated boldness. We need you. And all throughout the entire narrative of the scriptures, God used women who were humble, obedient, and willing. 
I praise God for that truth. And I pray we'll go from here encouraged by it and do something about it in Christ's name. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, thank you. Thank you for those disciples on the road having their hearts set on fire by a Bible study showing that all of the Hebrew scriptures was ultimately pointing forward to Christ. Thank you for the opportunity we've had over the last several weeks to go along for that journey, to, to with our imaginations, just, just take a piece and look at little bits of what that, that Bible study could have been, to be encouraged, Lord, by the working of your sovereignty <laughs> in undeniable ways. So many, it just so happens uh, that it becomes ridiculous to chalk it up to chance. Thank you, Lord, that we can see the moving of your hand uh, throughout the grand redemptive narrative of Scripture. Thank you, Lord, that when we're, when we're humble and we have eyes to see, we can see your sovereign hand moving in our life. Help us to recognize all that it just so happens as we're navigating the difficulty of a broken world, as we're attempting to participate in this glorious work of your kingdom. Thank you that there's uh, an absolute guarantee that you're with us. Lord, you didn't die just... Uh, just to be with us, but to go all the way to being in us. Thank you that you now live in us, the New Testament temple of your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you didn't save us just to, just to sit around and clap about it, but you saved us to be joined up into the great and glorious effort of spreading this gospel and making disciples of as many people as possible. Thank you, Lord. We, <laughs> I personally feel very unfit for that level of, of responsibility, but I thank you, Lord, you haven't called me to do it on my own. Thank you that you get glory in using imperfect humans to accomplish your will. Because, Lord, in the end, how do we look anywhere but you when it comes time to worship someone for the great things that come about? It's you. It's you. It's always been you. You're the only one worthy of worship. Thank you, Lord, for the heart-changing power of your word. Help us submit to it and walk in light of it. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.